You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and fully loaded chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Alrighty, guys, welcome back to another Land and Legacy podcast. Oh, an exhausting podcast. Road trip edition. Not necessarily that we're exhausted from this podcast, we're nope. exhausted getting ready to record this podcast <laughs> as we travel down the road. It is a Monday night. We're delayed. We're not even sure when you're going to get this podcast. It could be Tuesday. It could be later on this week. Thanks for hanging out and waiting for that to 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 launch on, on the nation. And uh, Matt and I, like you said, are headed down the road uh, as kind of a wrap-up from a long weekend. Yeah, we are coming from... North Missouri, and um, headed back home. We had a wonderful time hosting with um, our g- very generous client, Mike Hinkle, who you'll hear on the other podcast this week, um, hosting the Whitetail Weekend Habitat Module event up there with the National Deer Association and Onyx. So if you want to hear more about that event, um, some of the topics and things that we've covered, check the other podcast out. But it went well. It was yeah, a great, it was a great event. Great lots event. Lots of lots of people uh, who are passionate about wildlife management and land management were in attendance, and from all across the country. So that's that was always fun, um, and we were actually able to be very specific in talking about regions, issues that each one of them would be facing on their hunting property potentially. So yeah, that was great. And then we went from there. One of the things about that, though, about that event was Mike being a Retired guy, one-man band, Yep, pretty much when it comes to the work and how when we visited with him four years ago and now what the property looks like, it's just incredible how much he's accomplished over four years by himself. Yeah, and, and I think some of the 
key factors to that was the the practices he was choosing to use, number one. Yep. But two, the layout of the features allowed him to have access to be able to put fire lines in really quickly, maintain them, and then when it was time to burn, it was time to burn. Yeah. And then he got, I mean, a whole large area that was crops converted to pollinator. Yes. And so the property just looks more like prairie than it does crop field. Yes, and that was a humongous (sighs) undertaking. Um, (sighs) So props to him for the success, the management of that thus far. And uh, just a very well-rounded property. You and I were talking after we left. It's like, wow, you know, that that farm right there, that's a really well-put-together operational farm from a, yep. from a recreational standpoint. Great elements, and it's been, it's been very well taken care of. So that's right. It was a wonderful place to host, and thanks again, Mike, for, for allowing us to do that. After that, though, we went to another consultation. Um, Worked a worked a farm together and kind of like old times, and then now we're on the way back when we were broke. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep. Yeah, old times working properties together. We haven't worked property together in a couple of years, um, but because of scheduling and travel, we were both together, and so we worked this property, and that's that's where we're headed from now. I mean, fourteen hours in the field today. Yeah, we started at six a.m. and it's now almost eleven. Yep. And we are headed down the road. Whooped! Yeah, those today was a long day. Oh um, man, it was a it was a good day. A lot of great thoughts, a lot of great conversations and questions, and dialogue with uh, with the new clients. And the the farm is going to be heading in a very good direction. I think a lot of the the puzzling things that they've experienced and have to dealt deal with. Uh, we've got the solutions, and yeah. we've got the very uh, common, common uh, problems that we see. Yep, and uh, we'll be able to get her turned around quickly. I'm not even kidding you. I could pull over the truck right now and sleep for ten hours just on the side 10. of the road. I, I guarantee I could. Oh, at least until the sun came up. That that's impressive. Oh, um. So on this podcast, though, what what is a very timely subject to be able to talk about as well as one that I think confuses a lot of people is how do you grow bigger antlers in our opinion yeah 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 and and obviously we are extremely habitat minded how do you grow bigger bucks yeah we're very habitat minded and so some of the answers and, and ideas are going to potentially su- surprise you. The emphasis that we're placing on things outside of some of the habitat. Um, but everyone seems to be passionate about and care about, right? How do I grow bigger antlers? What are those factors that I can change on my property to accomplish that? And what is one, Adam, that um, automatically comes to mind for you when someone says, okay... I want bigger bucks? I want bigger bucks. Well, first off, rule number one for bigger bucks, to me, is always the easiest. They need to age. Correct. And so we'll go over some of the, the basic ones that that 
our kind of the rule of thumb, but then also jump into what we really want to talk about this week, and it's a lot of the overlooked, the overlooked things. Mm-hmm. Um, age being most important. A young buck gets shot is not going to be any bigger, bigger next year. Number two, nutrition. Talk about how important it is for a deer to have quality nutrition throughout as much of the year as possible. And then genetics. And ultimately, um, we can't control genetics in free-range deer. Those are kind of the basis. But really, the focus of this week's podcast is about some of the items we use or what we're looking at to really try to promote healthier deer and bigger deer, most importantly. Yeah, those are the three main, I think I think a lot of the, the, the sub-points that we're going to talk about could probably fall under some of that, um, but these are the often under underestimated value i think that that really does make a difference and we've seen um working with people from across the country and and how they've changed the habitat and they've decreased stresses and all this things things we're going to talk about here um and case study after case study is like okay we're seeing bigger and better deer and here's some of the things that by default are happening within yeah. the life and uh, daily life of individuals. Yeah, and I think like when you say age, nutrition, genetics, it's just like how do I get better gas mileage? Stop stomping the gas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's the basic easy one to say. Well, that's how you do it. Yeah. Well, for us there's like how do you pull in habitat features and laying out a property a- into subcategories of those main 3 to ultimately increase the size of the antlers. Uh in a roundabout way or what we believe and 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 i feel very confidently in these um in this idea in this belief that we have um because i just you know it logically speaking it all makes sense and but ultimately there's results there's results and i think i think when i talk about this first one uh, and we're going to talk about essentially having a lot of the re- all the resources that a deer needs packed into a small area. When I say that, someone's going to be like, okay, how does that even come close to impacting it? We'll get there. <laughs> but I first want to say that the antler growth or, or let's just say the better health of an individual is is like a secondary benefit of that. We're trying to pack in resources that they need because that's how we want to lay out a property spatially. Like that's yeah. just maximizing a property, right? That's right. The added benefit comes when they have all that they need and they don't have to expend an incredible amount of energy to go and have access to all that. It's just right there. Yes. Like, it's why walk a mile when I can get up and walk 40 yards or 60 yeah. yards and have that resource at the quantity that I need to. And yeah. so, I or, I mean, you know, for me, if my wife's bringing me Cheetos and sandwiches and I never have to get off the couch, eventually that catches up with me, you know? Like, oh, yeah. yeah. And ultimately, if a deer doesn't have to spend 
expend uh, excess energy. Yes. If he doesn't have to use a ton of energy to get somewhere to find food or another resource, then he can ultimately... There's way more going in than coming out in the in, as far as energy. It's Correct. not hard for him to find food. Um, even <coughs> from January to Excuse December. Me. Yeah, by the way, that's another thing about today that Oof. was really... We were riding around. Dragging. Dusty, pollen, you name it. We'd probably be oh, sneezing more like crazy. More dust than pollen, but oh my goodness. Um, so anyway, <coughs> yeah, there you Here. go. Um, and so... When you're looking at a, a large buck, or even a young buck, if he's having to travel a great distance to find resources, that's going to catch up with him. It's going to catch up with him, most importantly, during a stressful period of time. Yeah, when, when, it, when that food's resource, those resources that are needed are, are spread out great across the landscape and they're already pushed and they're already uh, stressed or they're already exerting a ton of energy, you're just exacerbating that time frame yes. i mean we, we, it's research has supported or seen uh documented very much that like a buck going into winter let's say a mid-october weight of a deer in a, in a december time frame post rut they could lose up like you know, 22 to like 25 percent of their body mass yeah that's imagine your weight if 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 you did that calculate how many pounds would be 25 percent of that because you began exerting so much energy. That's a lot. That is a lot of weight. And and that goes right into if a deer's losing that much weight and then you roll that into spring uh, late winter early spring when when it should be focusing on antler growth, it's focusing on I got to survive. I got to build my body back up. Yeah. I have to I have to first make it healthy to even Make myself healthy to even start thinking about antlers. Start growing great antlers. And so that kind of plays in effect. And then you, if you look in just in the food resource of, of, of the energy spent, is once again, how many times it is no coincidence that like the buck that Chad shot last, um, when was that? January. January. Yep. That it looked completely run down. Very and and as we shared down. on the podcast, he was walking om- he was walking over a mile an, a mile each night to get to a food source. Yep. So and and that was a and then once direct, again he had fescue in his yeah. mouth. That was a but that was a direct. Uh, the reason for that being is because the lack of good cover adjacent to that food source. So so that goes back into what we started talking with is the layout. So when you're packing in high quality resources food and cover and not just food and cover for one portion of the year but we're talking all the little time frames of the year into smaller areas and offering that you don't have this just extreme travel distance sure are they going to go outside i'm just throwing out 40 acres but are they going to go outside of that yes no doubt they are but again a lot of times we see this in travel patterns. Deer are pretty lazy. They take the path of least resistance all the time if it's safe. And if this area is safe and has all these resources, we just always it, it, it typically see just a smaller home range because it just is confined. Because why leave if you have everything there? That's and right. And so I, I kind of think of it like 
and this is a popular term in the health food, but like nutrient-dense food, right? You don't have to eat as much of high-quality food if it's really dense with the nutrients that you need. And so I think of property or quality habitat like the same thing. If, if I've got diversity on a 40-acre section of different plant communities, forbs, grasses, brambles, woody brows, and, a, and an excess of woody brows. Hard mass, soft hard mass. Ma- yeah. If I, can, if I can create that and manage that on a smaller chunk, don't just think of your property, but just think of just areas and pockets that have this, I'm probably going to be decreasing the general movements of white-tailed deer. Yeah, absolutely. They're it's kind of like the podcast Chad and I did a while back called Fragmenting the Farm, where you can look at a 40-acre grid and just try to see what all we offer within each 40-acre grid or 40-acre unit. And I think that people people honestly glaze over. They, they almost look at a, an entire farm at like a, that 30,000-foot level, right, and say, okay, well, I've got this box checked, that box checked, and this box checked. Um, but but they don't ask themselves, okay, how are those resources spread out, though, across a farm? And that is truly important when we're talking about trying to pack in and utilize these acres for all these different things. And, again, this goes right back into the need and the, and, and the importance of having a diverse farm. And we don't mean diverse. Again, just, oh, I have that check i have this check how is it laid out are you maximizing those acres it's easier to accomplish this too in areas of topography yeah if you have flat ground well guess what you don't have different slope aspects your shade value your thermal cover your um plant communities even could be totally different yeah and so the slope if you're in areas of topography can help increase the the differences of forages that you can uh, offer on a property. So, so many factors that go into it, but areas of high diversity that are dense with high quality food, in my our opinion, grow bigger antlers. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so you take in that, let's just say, pack as much as you can within a small unit. You can shrink down a deer's core area, but ultimately another big factor in that is you limit social stress, and that is one of the most overlooked, in my opinion, overlooked things during the winter months and early spring that really doesn't get talked about enough. We talk about the stress from the Midwest north of early spring, um, late winter, early spring, that time period. That's the biggest stressful period because food is limited. Well, food is limited, but the other big uh, social or other big stress period or stress part of that is social stress. You see deer herd up in large herds, almost like migratory animals, and you think, oh my gosh, I saw 100 deer in a field last night. Well, think about how much stress there is on those animals, especially mature deer who are pretty they're pretty good loners for most of the year. You see that in areas where there are 
limited food sources. Yeah. Like like when there's not option across the landscape, they all go and completely devour, let's just say, a cut cornfield or, yeah. or one that's not cut, right? Someone who left a little standing grain. Well, yeah, certainly you're going to have an increase <laughs> in the amount of deer spent spending time there, but that's and, not normal. That's and, not and how what deer happens, typically fill the landscape. What happens to deer when they herd up and move like that? They're probably shifting to areas that they're not usually in. It's a little bit outside of their comfort zone. Comfort zone. Well, and, and then t- what happens when you herd up a bunch of prey species? They're predators. Well, predators start to follow. They're skittish as all get out, and everyone can experience that during a late season hunt when you have tons of deer on the field. One silly doe looks and thinks she sees something, and it clears the field. Yeah, and then they pour back out. But everyone's just like high alert situations all the time when you don't have to be, and that's not typically what you see when there's a small doe group here, another one spread out across the field. They're just not that high intensity, wired like feeling. I I think of it right now as like if we were to get in the truck and it was a snowstorm, it was a blizzard, and we were driving. For twelve hours, at the end of that twelve hours, I'm I'm shot. Yep. Because it's a high stress situation, and it's for a long period. And if you take that for day, 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 I'm probably going to make a well, mistake. For a lot of days, on top of if they're in that situation too, limited food sources. So their yeah. body physically, and then almost this like psychological. Uh, aspect that plays into it too, because again, they're just uh, on a on a high level, wired level. Um, it, it plays into it, and in addition to that, you deer are, are they're browsers, right? And so, yeah. if you have a limited food source, and that's all that they're eating and going to, then you can't. You're taking away their browsing ability. They're not browsing anymore. They're just head down feeding on one thing, looking for one thing. Yeah. And so you've because changed the so way limited. you've changed the way they're trying to even forage on the landscape. So between the layout, packing in resources, and then the addition of social stress, yeah, that really does increase the yep. impact, or let's say it decreases antler sizes. And guess what? Even if you have, sure, a lot of deer um, pulled together on a, on, a, on a landscape during the month of December and January, if you're in a high deer density area, this is 365. Yeah. 365 yep. of this wired high-stress situation. Not, not good. No. Not good for the resource. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think about uh, with the social stress is how much social stress plays into and how often we see overpopulation of white-tailed deer. You think about places where uh, southern Iowa comes into play. I think about Michigan. I think about even Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, Some of these states where you can't shoot an abundant amount of does. Yeah, just list the states. I can keep going on and on. It's in pockets, but many times. And and I think, obviously, overpopulation is extremely 
um, dependable, uh, dependent upon each property's carrying capacity itself. Yeah. Right. I mean, and well, even not f- just the property, but the whole neighborhood. Yeah. So, for, for, let's just say forty deer per square mile in a really poor habitat is overpopulated in respect to that area because of the poor quality habitat. But then there's other areas that could support eighty deer per square mile. Now that's a lot on the landscape. That's a, that's a high, that's a high density, but habitat-wise, it could still support it. That doesn't mean you still should have 80 deer per square mile because you do have a ton of deer interaction. Yeah, every time they get up yeah. from bed, and especially during the stress period. It, it's, yeah, it's yeah. exacerbated even more during that that time frame. Yes, and and you know, just look at what happens: a deer population grows it gets too big then what happens the habitat starts to deteriorate it starts to head in a decreasing state woody browse availability starts becoming limited um forest and that's where forest regeneration becomes even uh even less and less and less and then you go into higher predator numbers and all of a sudden the population is starting to really suffer Mm -hmm. and social stress becomes even bigger and and that could be happening even during the fall, not even getting ready to go into the heart of the big stress period. And yep. then a buck, now he's rolling into March, and he is just flat worn out. Food is limited. He's having to travel further distances from what he's, um, from where he's staying or where secure cover is, and he's in areas that he's not familiar with as much, and he's stressed out because he's newer areas. Longer distances, more deer around him. He was a loner to begin with. There's now predators more abundant. And all of a sudden, he's going, ah, this is not good. This is not good for me. (laughs) Yeah. Time out. I'm not ready for this. And, and, um, And that's just, you know. That's just bucks. That's just bucks. That's not even counting the does. Yeah, because a lot of times at that time frame, late winter, they're pregnant, right? They're maybe carrying uh, twins. Even if they're carrying one fawn inside, as they're going into that last trimester, which is the biggest time for fawn development, if they're coming into that high-stress situation or in a higher deer-density area with limited cover, there's a hierarchy within the does that they're selecting for the best quality of fawning sites. And so... If you have a lot of does on the landscape, there's a lot of competition. And if you have lots of does in poor habitat, it's even worse. So there's just so many things that are just compounded, right, when you're stacking that many deer into a smaller area. And I think we see that, too, within humans. Yeah. I mean, mean. everything just seems to kind of deteriorate when we're just living in, like, Closed quarters on one on top of another on top of another. In New York City. Where San there you Francisco. Go. Yeah, all these so, jam-packed cities. Um, and, and, and so how do you, what do we do about this? Like, uh, obviously, um, for us, one of the biggest things is lower the deer population. Put that population back down to where the habitat's not suffering, the deer aren't stressed out. I mean, and, and, and so, in my opinion, in the short terms... I'm looking at going, I want the, if you were to look at, uh, like, here's peak performance in the habitat. There's 
uh, maximum woody brows available or uh, very abundant woody brows, very abundant herbaceous plants. There are supplements with food plots or crops or whatever. So food is just very available. They don't have to look hard to find food in every part of the farm. And then uh, hard mass, there's healthy oaks, and then there's healthy soft mass. So food is available. But then the population is below the carrying capacity to where the deer aren't stressed out. They have everything they ever need, and they're not having to run into other deer. And I honestly think that's one of the benefits about where we're at in the Ozarks is the deer population is pretty pretty good over the fact that we don't really complain over the fact that we have way too many does like we do in a lot of like we hear in a lot of the places that we work. Yeah, no, it it, it seems to be relatively balanced. But it also is largely closed canopy forest and fescue pasture and so there's kind of some built-in limitations there we don't have like this huge artificial amount of food on the landscape and then it's pulled during different times of year like crop country does to lean on and and shine at some portion of the year then then just like seem to have this crashing effect yeah um but yeah to grow bigger antlers you can't just look on age. Nutrition, of course, you've got to have tons of native forage to be able to supply and, and an, an abundance of that on the landscape. But you have to have it in high-density, compact areas that are secure, that have all the other resources. That's definitely helpful, as we talked about early on. Genetics, you're not going to play or, or see or be able to figure that game out. So don't even try. Like I, I don't. I don't consider that. Let's say if I'm looking for property, I don't look at the other neighbor's genetics because most likely there's one of two things that hasn't happened. The age structure is probably not in place to really know, and then two. The habitat is likely limiting to really know if what the genetic potential is even if individuals are getting to an older age class so that's just really rare to even find and if deer are getting to age class in good habitat guess what they're big so (laughs) so i don't look to genetics to figure something out here right it's just what's the deer density at and if it's high i'm gonna shoot does to make bigger antlers yeah I'm going to focus my my efforts elsewhere because of the interconnectivity there of too many deer in the landscape. I'm yeah. going to shoot does. So think about it like this. If I were to give you two scenarios, which one would you choose? Okay. Would you rather go in an area that's known for big deer, known to have several Boone and Crockett's killed in each county, known to just have a healthy deer population, mm-hmm. but when you observe the deer population, you say... Yeah, the habitat's suffering because the deer are overpopulated. Or would you rather go into an area that's kind of sleeperish when it comes to having a big having big deer, the population being pretty poor and going, you know, if I improve the habitat, let's just say it's 500 acres each. Uh-huh. If I improve the habitat, um, I can ultimately increase the amount of availability for deer and know that I'm not going to have to deal with social stress for a little while and then think about 
fixing the habitat, but managing the deer herd. Which one do you think you could get by with quicker? Quicker? Yeah, which one do you uh, think you would see the results in, in the overall health of the herd and maybe size of the antler quicker? That's a good question. I'll answer it in two ways. I think that you could probably quicker get to situation A. Yeah. Because that tells me that the resources available for deer are already present on the landscape. So although they may be a little bit higher, I know it's producing some, some big deer already yeah okay so they're they're present so that might be a little quicker but that doesn't mean that that's where i would want to actually manage i would rather buy and have a property of 500 acres that has a lower density pack all the resources in and then as that carrying capacity has drastically increased it takes a little bit for that herd to actually rebound and fill the availability that there is now on the landscape and i would rather basically cap it me be the cap with annual harvest to say okay i'm not letting you get above this number or i shouldn't say this number this level in relation to the quality habitat it's much more time consuming difficult to go into a really high deer density area be consistent over the number of years to repetitively decrease antler I mean, excuse me, antlerless um, numbers and yeah. overall deer herd. That's a that, that's a long term strategy yeah. unless you're just crazy I, I, intense I, with it. I, yes, if regulations a, a allow. A lot of these times, yeah. And that's the other part of the question. That's the fine print. Can you actually harvest a, an adequate amount of her, uh, of does? And that's where even uh, we see it a lot of times. Even if they even if they have the ability to get a bunch of tags, how many of our landowners or people we talk to realistically shoot the amount of does that they need to be shooting to, to even keep the population under control? Very, very, very few. Very few. I mean, most people, I would say, who are, man- who are doing a good job of managing the habitat, they're not looking to... They're not shooting enough deer to even stabilize. Yeah. They're increasing every year. Yeah. And so it's it's much more or it's much more intense than what a lot of people really think about when it comes to annual harvest yeah. to get into a stabilizing, much less decrease mode. That's why I went with option two as a preference. What would you it, do? Yeah, the same thing. And that's kind of where, I mean, I didn't even plan on it being that way. But half, halfway through, I'm like, I'm kind of describing my farm where we're improving the habitat. We have a relatively low deer density but yet we've decided based on what we saw last winter that we need to start really harvesting some does before it gets to the point where it's like, this is going to be hard. Mm-hmm. This is going to be hard to bring the population back down. And so for us, that that's exactly where we're at. We're going to knock the population back or at least try to not allow it to expand like it does when habitat really starts to improve and see just what that does to the deer herd. Yeah. I mean... All those combinations, factors, influences, um, they make variables. They make a difference. And I think, is that everything? Probably not. Probably not covered in this one single podcast of, uh, obviously, what can influence and make some antlers bigger. But those are some key points that we have noticed and that we're commonly keeping in the back of our mind as we are developing management plans and properties for clients not everyone's not everyone's goal is make the biggest baddest 
antler jumps possible. So, we, so some of them we don't necessarily have to consider as strongly. But when we do face that as a management plan or as a as a goal and an objective of a landowner, I absolutely do consider these things in the way a property is initially set up, planned, and then executed. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, no, I hopefully. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast, and I hope that uh, if you have some comments or things that you've thought about or brainstormed or have, uh, I guess, have spent some research time uh, on this, shoot us a message uh, on social media, Atlanta Legacy. Uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. And, uh, Matt, I'm, I'm ready, I'm to, ready to knock it off and yep. try to get down this road so we can get home. Get home and get to work. Guys, appreciate you listening. We'll uh, catch you guys next week right here. Sportsman Nation.